Welcome to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book, with Susie Chase. She's just a home cook in New York City, sitting at her dining room table, talking to cookbook authors. Hi, I'm Erin Jean McDowell, and my newest cookbook is called Savory Baking, Recipes for Breakfast, Dinner, and Everything in Between. This cookbook is about translating your love of baking into every meal of the day. And let's kick things off a few years ago when you started noticing a pattern when it came to your baking style. What was that? I sort of realized that um, I I had a sweet tooth, certainly, and the sweet tooth had kind of been driving the ship of my career, you know, for most of my life. But I had this definitive salt tooth that I like to call it, you know, just meaning I loved making savory things. And when I was given an opportunity to make something uh, for people that I love or to impress people, I remember once I was going to a big event and there were going to be a lot of other pastry chefs there. I chose to make something savory because I felt like... Like it was something that I loved doing and that love would kind of translate and you'd be able to taste it. So it was certainly starting to become, you know, a guidepost in in my own baking. But it's far from a trend, you know, all over the world, there are massive quantities of savory baking. And so it was really fun to be able to dive into it and like a larger single subject book sort of format. So you say savory baking really inspires you to reach beyond your normal baking creative thinking. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, sort of baking has this reputation for being very by the book. And I, I certainly understand that because if you go rogue on a baking recipe, You could think you're making the tiniest little change, but it actually can drastically impact the results. But cooking has a reputation for being a little bit more by the cuff, right? So you can add a little bit of this or you like things spicier so you can kick up the spice. And what I love about savory baking is it really is the best of both worlds. I definitely have to utilize that, you know, slightly more science uh, tuned portion of my brain, but it also allows me to riff a lot easier because once I have that base recipe for a tart or for, um, you know, a pastry, I can really mix up the filling inside the same way that I can mix up what kind of stew I might want to make for dinner. Did you see this yesterday in the news on Eater? It said the James Beard Foundation is introducing a bread book category to the awards in 2023. Oh my gosh, I actually didn't see that. And that makes me so happy. I feel like bread is almost its own world. And, uh, you know, in pastry school, even they sort of divvied you into these two categories of the bakers and the pastry chefs. And the bakers were, you know, especially the bread bakers and the the yeast people. (laughs) And uh, I definitely have always identified more on that baker side. And uh, that makes me really happy. And this this book is super bread heavy. And it's actually really the first time that I have done that in any of my books. There's one yeast raised recipe in my first book, The Fearless Baker. And obviously, the book on pie is is all about pie. (laughs) So this was really an exciting time for me because bread was one of the first parts of baking that I really, really fell in love with. And um, I used to be a bread baker through college. And um, it's just definitely a, a really big part of me. So you say you grew up eating a lot of pie and you say there's a pie making tradition in the Midwest, which I love to hear. So what <laughs> sorts of savory pie recipes did you create for this cookbook? This 
was so much fun for me because I had a savory chapter in my last book, the book on pie, um, because I couldn't leave this this sort of savory dream that I had totally behind. So I squeezed some into the book on pie, but it was only one chapter. And, you know, then there were four other chapters of, of different sweet versions. And so this basically gave me an opportunity to reopen that part of my brain and, and bring out some of the ideas that didn't get to come out the first time around. And I just had so much fun. I tried to think a lot of utilitarian things, but also some real showstoppers because I feel that pie is um, inherently a showstopper. So some of the showstopper ones that are so fun are the meat and potatoes pie, which is sort of beef stew on the inside and then duchess potatoes topping it. From afar, it looks almost like a toasted meringue topped pie, but of course it's instead meat and potatoes. So that one is really fun. On the more utilitarian side, I have this really fun recipe where the pie crust is baked just on a sheet pan on its own and then topped with all sorts of delicious things after baking. It's so easy, great in the summer when you don't want to turn the oven on for a long time. And there's also some really cool alternative pie crust recipes using the same masa dough that I would use to make tortillas as sort of the crust for a tamale-inspired pie, and also using leftover rice to form a crust. And the filling is sort of this spicy miso eggplant. And both of those are really easy and definitely nowhere near as intimidating as making a a whole pastry crust sort of pie. So when it comes to savory pies, you like to think outside the traditional pie plate. I'd love to hear about that. I love a pie pan. I have a lot of them. But I think when it comes to making it for dinner, sometimes you definitely want uh, a different sort of presentation option. One thing is I like to bake in spring form pans sometimes to get one of those really tall, impressive pies. But I also really like a cast iron skillet, which really any sort of oven safe skillet would work great. But a cast iron specifically drives a lot of heat to the bottom and that can help prevent uh, soggy bottoms, which no one wants that on their pies. And then also, I think that sometimes when you're eating it as a meal, you want the opportunity for them to be individually portioned. Um, So using things like muffin pans or individual tart plates or little pie plates, things like that is another great way to kind of bring it more into the savory world. So I learned about fry bread in this cookbook. Can you talk about your first memory tasting fry bread at Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas? Yes, I. Uh, it was a bit of a tradition in my family. My my mom and dad would take me to this art festival that they had every year at Haskell, which is um, an amazing university in my hometown of Lawrence. And I had this delicious fry bread one year when I went there and I immediately went to look up how to make it and was sort of then met with, you know, the fascinating history of fry bread, which, um, you know, was really born out of necessity and resilience only when indigenous tribes were being forced to uh, live on reservations and they no longer had access to huge quantities of crops that they had and instead were given processed white flour and lard. And fry bread was one of the things that, that came of it. My experience tasting it was mind-blowing and then learning the history so immediately after definitely gave me um, an even greater appreciation for for something that is so delicious, but definitely has, you know, a complicated history. And it also then kind of led me down the road of looking at other fried breads that you have kind of throughout cultures and traditions. And in fact, 
I have Hungarian ancestry and there's a delicious fry bread known as PC. And um, that can often be more of a sweet sort of thing. So I actually included some sugar coated PC in the, um, the variation for this fry bread recipe as well. So is fry bread crunchy or is it soft? Oh, it's both. That's the best part about it. It's crunchy around the outside, um, kind of shattery. Like it, it's certainly not flaky, but it shatters the same way something like a croissant or something would that outer crust of it. And then it's very, very soft and fluffy on the inside. It's not yeast rays. Uh, my version uses baking powder. And so it's, it's very, you know, no rise time. It's pretty simple to make. And it's actually become a big tradition in my family. We make it and we make fry bread tacos. Um, and it's, it's something that we do very often in, in um, holidays when we're all together, we'll, we'll make fry bread for kind of a big hearty lunch one day. And it's, it's so much fun and we'll save some of the fry bread and, and have it as dessert. We'll just go full double fry bread. <laughs> oh, that sounds amazing. So another of the many things I learned in this cookbook was there are three types of egg wash. Talk a little bit about why we should use an egg wash and what are the three versions? Yeah, I, I love to use an egg wash to promote even browning. So that's the main thing that, that it's doing, but it also is going to uh, have the ability to create a little bit of shine on the top of the product and which part of the egg that you use determines that. So sometimes when I have a dish maybe that I want to add shine to, but I know it's going to brown well all on its own. Maybe it has a lot of cheese in it, so it's going to get darker golden brown on its own. Maybe I would only use an egg white wash because then I wouldn't necessarily be promoting browning. I would just be adding the shine because that's really what the egg white contributes. Other times, I might not necessarily want the shine. I want more of a matte look. Um, in which case I might use an egg yolk wash because then I'm going to get that browning, but I'm not going to get the intense shine. And most of the time you're usually just using, um, you know, the whole egg as the egg wash, and that's going to contribute both some browning and some shine. So you get the best of both. Since we're both from Kansas, <laughs> I thought I'd make the obvious, your classic cornbread. And you call yourself a corn fanatic. And um, you say there are a few different ways to make cornbread. I'd love for you to chat a little bit about that. Well, when I set out to write this book, cornbread, it's one of the first recipes in the book. And it was one of the first things that I started writing. Because I think that it's such an important one in the savory world. It can go savory in so many ways but also it's an accompaniment to so many delicious, savory dishes. And in my mind, I was going to come up with just one cornbread recipe that was my ideal cornbread. But the unfortunate thing was, as I went through, I started discovering that I really found wonderful, positive things about a number of different cornbread recipes that I was trying in different variations. So in the end, there are so many variations of cornbread in here, and they're all so good. And I love them all for different reasons. And it was a really fun journey kind of to decide that I wanted to devote a little bit more real estate in the book so that I could cover all of these different cornbreads that I wanted to feature. I learned so many tips from this recipe. Uh, one, if you want a crispier crust, bake it in a skillet. Yes. You know, again, the heat... The way cast iron retains heat, it's going to promote a little bit more browning anywhere that the batter is coming in contact with it. So in the same amount of bake time, it gets a little bit crisper on that outside edge. 
And I really love that sometimes, especially when I'm serving it alongside something like chili or something where I'm going to be dunking it. It's kind of nice to have some of that textural contrast. And then you say, if you don't want it to dry out once you slice it, add brown sugar. A lot of people misunderstand the use of sugar in savory recipes. Um, A lot of people think, I think, especially that in America, we're so addicted to sugar, which is definitely true. Um, And certainly as a baking author, you know, I've never been accused of using too little sugar (laughs) in the recipes that I create. However, sugar is, uh, provides moisture in recipes and it improves shelf life. That's why so often when you go to the grocery store, some of the varieties of bread that are sold, um, you know, not in the bakery section, the packaged sliced bread. When you look, they all have sugar in them. It's one of many preservatives that they put in to help keep it soft and prevent it from staling. So home baked goods, by adding a little bit of sugar to some of your savory baked goods, you can prevent them from drying out really fast. And for example, I I say you can leave the brown sugar out of this cornbread because you 100% can. It won't really affect the texture a ton, you're not going to notice the absence of it in the taste unless you have, you know, a very, very fine palate. But um, if you're not going to eat it all right away and you want to be able to eat it over a couple of days, I would really recommend using that sugar because it's going to improve the overall shelf life of the product. I found it interesting that your version of traditional cornbread has no flour and all cornmeal. The earliest versions of cornbread were were basically more paste-like with just cornmeal and water. But as time went on, it became common to use white flour to give a fluffier texture to the cornbread. But especially um, in places where wheat didn't grow as readily, so there there wasn't the same access to white flour, or maybe in times of war um, where budgets were tighter and and uh, distribution of all of these things was was harder to come by. It was very common to make cornbread using only cornmeal and uh, no white flour, and it's definitely still a lot of people swear by this as the way to make cornbread, especially in the South. Um, there's a lot of people that this is how they make cornbread and. I have to confess, I love it. I love the fluffier cornbread, and that is what I list as the classic cornbread. But when I was trying all these variations, the traditional cornbread that only uses cornmeal, it is so purely corn tasting. It's just delicious, and it is a little bit crumblier. And bonus, it's also naturally gluten-free because there is no white wheat flour in it. So I really believe that in this book, no matter kind of your feeling on cornbread, you're going to find one that that kind of hits that perfect craving for you because I really tried to include all the best ones and and I, I had a lot of favorites. Since I'm not a baker, I'm crazy about quick bread. You have an intriguing recipe for pine nut and salami quick bread. Can you describe it? There's such an interesting combination of flavors and textures going on. I wanted to create some quick breads that that um, could be used in sort of an appetizer-y way, meaning you could make this quick bread and and slice it and just leave it out the same way you would leave out a plate of cheese or charcuterie. And that actually sort of inspired the flavors of those quick breads that I thought about kind of charcuterie plates and different combinations of things that I liked to see. So the pine nut and salami is one version. I dice the salami really, really small. So you get these kind of little chewy bits throughout. And then obviously you get the crunch from the pine nut. 
there's some herb in there. Um, and, and there's also other versions kind of in the variations there. There's a marinated olive and feta version, which is really delicious. And so again, just kind of trying to think of it in this snacking capacity and quick breads are known for being really lovely and moist. But I also wanted to think of these as the ability to maybe be toasted, either as leftovers or almost as little skillet crackers. And that's one of my favorite ways to enjoy them. Actually, that pine nut salami one, I like to lightly toast it and then do a thin layer of, you know, like scallion cream cheese or um, the pepper jelly that's in the book is also really delicious with it as well. I love that you say muffins are small quick breads. (laughs) Well, they really are. It's sort of like the difference between muffins and cupcakes is is frosting. <laughs> you know, the, sometimes the only thing that that differentiates these are are the pan that we bake them in. So for the most part, the method and the ratio of making a muffin is typically pretty similar to that um, of a quick bread. I need a needlepoint pillow that says the difference between muffins and cupcakes is frosting. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I just even think about me in some of my videos for my web series, I'll sometimes hold up a pan. And if I'm making cupcakes, I say, this is a cupcake pan. And if I'm making muffins, I say, this is a muffin pan. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's where we're making them in. Or is it a muffin liner or is it a cupcake liner? It just depends on what you're making. <laughs> That's hilarious. On page 228, you have a recipe for beer rock. Beer rocks exploded in Kansas and they were invented by Kansas German immigrants in the mid-1800s. Can you just talk a little bit about this recipe? I love this recipe. And I uh, I know in actually lots of places in the United States, these are, are pretty popular, but especially in, in certain parts of the Midwest where they've kind of like grown outwards um, and are obviously based in German baking traditions. It is a stuffed sort of all-in-one sort of bread. So it's a soft dough. It gets really brown around the outside, but not crusty. It's very soft. And then um, the filling can be any number of things. Um, Another, you know, sort of a rose by any other name sort of moment. Another way that a similar, very similar um, item is known is the Runza. And the Runza is sort of Nebraska born and is even a, a chain of restaurants Um, And it's sort of almost like an all-in-one burger. So the inside of it has, you know, ground meat and onions, maybe cabbage, um, cheese possibly. And um, that combination of soft dough and kind of yielding to this filling, it really is, it's just incredible. And it's, it's one of the first savory pastries that I was like, you could write a whole book about stuff like this. You know what I mean? Like when I would eat Byrock, I would just be like, oh... I, I could just write about these, talk about these, make these for days. The nice thing about the Biroc is that they're just, they can be incredibly versatile. Like you can really put any number of fillings inside of it. And so I did kind of a non-meat version, but another familiar flavor combination. I did broccoli and cheddar for one. It's really a lot of fun uh, to introduce people who've never had a Biroc to them. But it's also just like... It's a very familiar tasting thing, even if you've never had one before, because it's it's just soft dough and savory filling. And it's it's really awesome. And for those who can't shake their sweet tooth, you sprinkle in sweet tooth breaks. What are those? 
I can't, you know, leave my sweet tooth totally behind just because I noticed I've got a little bit of a, a salty thing going on. So also a lot of these doughs really lend themselves to being made in both sweet and savory applications. So for example, I talk about strudel in this book, which is actually another recipe really close to my heart. And I love a savory strudel, but I included a sweet strudel in there as well as a sweet tooth break. And there's also um, with uh, the monkey bread dough, it's a lovely dough. It's so soft and wonderful to work with, easy to shape. And I thought this is so easy and lovely to work with. You have to be able to make something sweet out of this too, because there are just so many possibilities here. And obviously we've got a croissant recipe, so I can include how to how to make chocolate croissants in there and some little moments like that, just to be able to kind of remind you that also if you do have a household of people and you're already taking the time to make this dough, maybe you can turn that dough into dinner and dessert. <laughs> I applaud you because you show mistakes as well as successes in your videos. So much of baking and cooking is portrayed in this perfect made for Instagram light, which I really hate. I really strongly believe that there's not just one right way to do things in the kitchen. And I also really firmly believe that we learn so much from our mistakes. And certainly, I learned a lot from watching other people make mistakes, even when you watch um, old episodes of of Julia, uh, you know, on PBS, her series, you know, she would make mistakes on camera all the time. And then she would kind of explain why it happened and what she was going to do. And, and that was just so realistic, because that that happens in real life, even if the reason it was happening to her is because she was trying to cook live to a camera. <laughs> but I really admire and respect that and definitely have taken so much inspiration from that. So in my web series, Bake It Up a Notch, we show where mistakes can happen. That's what the section we call it, mistakes happen. And um, I show sort of where things go wrong and talk about how you can avoid them and how you can fix them. And a lot of the mistakes are not mistakes that would affect the flavor or the taste. They're just about perfecting the shaping or getting the visual look just right. And that's, I think, an important lesson in itself is that when we're looking and comparing so much of what we make in our kitchens to things we see on the internet or on social media... Um, you know, a reminder, I always say to people who send me their crust and they say, well, it doesn't look like yours. Well, I've made thousands of pies at this point, you know, and, and if that was your first attempt, that's a beautiful pie. You know, that's a gorgeous attempt at the first time. And your hands are going to get more skilled every time you do it. There's a real muscle memory to baking. So showing people mistakes, I think, can also be kind of encouraging to remind you that this is still going to taste delicious, even if the seam is visible on this pretzel. Do you know what I mean? There Sometimes the mistakes are not anything that would actually change how much we can enjoy eating it and it can just be something we can learn from so that maybe next time they they look as good as they taste. That's such a good point because most of the time my mistakes are visual and I know I have to put it on Instagram. <laughs> well, and I certainly understand and appreciate that. And I actually just had a question on Instagram the other day from someone who says the photos in your book are so beautiful, but but doesn't it just feel so fake because you know your everything is is fake in the pictures, no doubt. Well, nothing is fake in these pictures. I definitely overhandle things sometimes. And occasionally we might have little errors that we have to sort of battle, you know, to make them look like what we want to look like. But I'm a I'm a strong believer that I want the pictures in my book to look like what it's going to look like. So I, um, I don't do a lot of tricks and, and we eat all of these things after we photograph them. So there's not fake food or fake things in here. That's a bit of a 
misconception because some people may work like that, but especially with savory stuff, like, you know, if you see melty gooey cheese, that is, that is melty gooey cheese. <laughs> so what are you making for Thanksgiving this year? We all want to know. Oh, can you believe you're the first person to ask me that question? The, the, the family Thanksgiving coordinator hasn't even asked me that yet. <laughs> um, no, I always make the pies, obviously. And, um, and I did save, I tracked down some Concord grapes, which um, have a very short season. It's probably already over in most places. Um, but last week I found some and I pre-made some Concord grape filling and froze it. That's one of my favorite fall pies. It's it's really unexpected and tart and delicious. And um, I like to bring one of those. And, and then I usually have kind of some, some more typical requests. Like I usually have to bring an apple and a pumpkin. And then I usually make one kind of wild card every year as well. So I, I need to start brainstorming about what that might be. I might, I might have to turn back into my books. Maybe I'll bring a savory one. That would be a real wild card. That would be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do like the idea of making pies for Thanksgiving that are savory. And I don't know if this is just maybe in recent years because of the pandemic with people meeting in much smaller groups. A pie is something, you know, uh, a standard nine inch pie serves eight people. So making a savory pie kind of as an entree or as a, a major side dish, I think is actually a really cool idea. And there are some different ones in the book that would work really well. There's sort of one that has... Um, creamed greens on the inside of it that would make a delicious side dish at thanksgiving and also great for any vegetarians who are coming to turkey day now to my segment called i could keep eating where i ask you what one food you could just keep eating and eating and for example i could keep eating store cake or parker <laughs> house rolls with butter cheese <laughs> I, I could keep eating. I mean, truly, but obviously, if given the option, I can like dive in. It just kind of depends on the mood. One of my favorite snacking cheeses right now is manchego. And I just make myself, my my husband will actually do this for me sometimes, which is the sweetest. He'll cut me really, really thin slices of manchego and bring them to me on a plate with some fruit or something. And it's honestly one of my favorite snacks, um, but also just like cubes of cheddar um, little pearls of fresh mozzarella. I could literally eat any cheese that you put in front of me and I could keep eating it for a very long time. So where can we find you on the web and social media? You can find me on Instagram at emcdowell and on Facebook at Erin Jean McDowell and also on TikTok at Erin J. McDowell. I'm, I'm around. Come find me. I'm throwing a lot of flour around, melting a lot of cheese and, and rolling a lot of dough. Erin, <laughs> I cannot thank you enough for coming on Cookery by the Book podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. And I'm just so excited for everyone to dive into savory baking and find that love of baking with every meal that they make. Subscribe over on cookerybythebook.com. And thanks for listening to the number one cookbook podcast, Cookery by the Book.